of and usage uh, and approaches that are being used by Ukrainian combat aviation is a secret, and we will not delve into that regarding Russians. They occasionally use these uh, indirect fire mode and a ballistic arch, but from what Khorol has seen, they're essentially not even active that much in that way. They are just uh, using the combat aviation to essentially drop larger, uh, larger, larger, larger bombs. Щоб ви розуміли, справді, от щоб я хотів би ну таке ремарочку, вже не, не про бойові там дії, таке про нашу біль. А, на початку вторгнення, я ж кажу, я лежав ну, з Гостомеля, я самоевакуювався, плюс трьох поранених бійців з собою забрав в Ірпінський шпиталь. І коли вони тоді ще там намагалися всьому світу донести, що вони там денацифікують, демілітаризують, ну це свою бред для свого обивателя, якийсь маску. Зараз маски скинуто. Весь світ може бачити, що вони роблять. Але вже і тоді, коли вони нам намагалися бути типу культурними, лежачи в шпиталі і при мені, коли розбомбили Ірпі, я батько дитини 4 років, і коли при, при тобі привозять дитину, яка схожа на курча гри, і ти розумієш, що з розмов, що цій дитині, дівчинці 4 роки, то маски було скинути для мене ще 8 років назад. 24-го це нарешті почали бачити люди, зараз це мусить бачити весь світ. Це не люд. Дякую. And just on a personal note, regarding what Russians do in Ukraine, since the 24th they were trying to dance around for a week or two regarding the way that they wage war and present it to the outside world. But eventually it transpired that the means that they're using it's completely essentially war crimes, over war crimes and over war crimes. So Horol has seen it for eight years since he started uh, defending Ukraine and uh, now gladly more and more people have seen what Russians are and from his personal view he has uh, he has a daughter or pardon he has a kid who is four year old and uh, he has seen when he was in a clinic in Hostamo and when he evacuated or self-evacuated with a number of his own soldiers he has seen uh, a little kid, a girl, who was brought in and she had massive burns and basically her skin was seared down uh, to, the, uh, to the tissues and it was a horrendous look. And at that point it was obvious what Russians are doing. They're targeting civilians, they're trying to kill and they're essentially inhuman in the way they, they're doing everything in Ukraine. It's completely inhuman behavior and uh, it's uh, at least the one aspect that is good about it that more people understand that what russians are and what they're doing Слава Україні. я можу і по українськи спитатися, але тому я зараз я майже плачу, бо як я тут чую, та не майже, а плачу. Дякую вам за те, що ви нашу країну як боротися за нею. Я хотіла, ми між іншим зараз, я сама з Мюнхену, з Німеччини, ми допомагаємо зараз 79-й бригаді, бо я як лікар замовляю медикаменти. Якщо вам щось не вистачає, ви можете мені написати. Ну, я багатьом вже висилаю е, транспортери, звісно, що треба. Е, Моє питання було, ви чули зараз про ті слухи, що іранські дрони хочуть москалі купляти в великих, як то кажеться, об'ємах. Наскільки, як ви це оцінюєте? Якщо вони це зроблять, і цей діль, як то кажеться, як, як ви за це переживаєте? І, і що можна як контра, ну, чи, як ви на це реагуєте? Дякую. По-перше, дякую вам, дякую за вашу допомогу. Хотілося б сказати, я розумію емоції, але давайте так, будемо плакати а, і радіти після перемоги. Ну, не, маскалі не варті наших сліз. Вони от того і хочуть, добиваються, щоб деморалізувати. Це те, що я бачу, це те, що було. І дуже багато, повірте, в мене сцен, які я 
я розповім для того, щоб всі знали, хто вони. Але ну, ну, це, я... наразі це треба ховати десь туди тихенько, тому що я бачив дуже багато вигорівших людей. Так не, емоційно не треба так, тому що дай вам Боже здоров'ячка триматися, але тримайтеся. Не, не, так, цю лють я каналізую в моїх перевозах великими об'ємами, бо я як лікар дістала дозвіл закупляти медикаменти, які то рідко таке буває, але я себе тримаю в тому тонусі, що ви просто щоб не робити ніяких пауз, я, звичайно, руйную зараз трохи себе, але стараюся дуже. Ну, і для вас, я Добре, для дивіться, таких людей. Щодо вашого так. питання. Так. Ну, дивіться, давайте, я е, намагаюся бути налаштований на оптимізм. Що це mm -hmm. значить? Якщо вони хочуть іранські дрони, то значить їхнє лайно вже в них закінчується. Це по-перше. По-друге, вони мали змогу мали змогу з 14-го року продовжувати купувати де, в деяких країнах деякі товари навіть не двойного, не подійного призначення, а явно вираженого військового. Е, якщо в них це все закінчилось, що вони е, ну як, опускають планку до виробництва, до дронів виробництва Ірану, ну, це, ж, це ж, в принципі, позитивний знак. Я не думаю, що іранські дрони настільки високотехнологічніші за Кацапські. Бо то вони за свої дурні газові гроші купували все, що могли найкраще, і клипали. Зараз вони, умовно кажучи, на колінках клипають із лайна і палок, а хочуть отаке. Ну нічого, ну куплять, ну хай купляють. Будемо збивати. Все. Дякую. Зрозуміло. А тепер перекладіть, пані. Irene. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, well, I, I just thanked him a lot for what he's doing for Ukraine and um, and offered also help in case they need some medications because I'm working for, in this topic now as a doctor. Uh, my question was how he is analyzing now the, the potential um, um, like uh, that, that uh, Russians will buy want to buy Iranian drones and how he is evaluating it, evaluating it if it is a dangerous uh, like thing how they analyze uh, this uh, potential like uh, yes uh, I think they want to buy more than 100 and he says that this is actually a good sign that they are losing their drones so if, if they had even before a military drones uh, uh, produced in Uh, did I understand it right in Russia? No. So they had some and they are really using as much equipment that they have to desperately buy now in, in, in Iran. And he takes it very easy. He doesn't see it as a danger. He sees it as a good sign that they are losing their own equipment. Yeah. Okay. And also, and also about how to manage your anger. It was very important thing. Yeah, it is incredible. I, I, I live in Germany and I'm, uh, it's, it's uh, very, for a long time. So I didn't, could not prepare myself psychologically for this war as Ukrainians did. I am really impressed myself and uh, how mentally tough they are. I was in the beginning completely a mess and Ukrainians called me and said, listen, come down. You can help because we are in diaspora very i had a really really bad conscience to live here and not to help uh, not not to be in ukraine and help there directly and they said listen you can after your long-term work as a doctor you can really help us with uh, medications and and this is where i channeled my energy but still i noticed that my emotions i'm much softer in this point and i cannot in this short period of time i'm not getting as robust uh, as ukrainians after eight years because they are like incredible i'm really really proud of my country yes and i just feel so sorry for them and historically we we i'm actually that history the history of ukraine is uh, spread now in the world is really important and I'm in Germany and I'm, as, as Dave said before, you are just so angry about uh, 
choice and uh, the the case that they don't just a lot of people don't care. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Damon Axel, do you have a question? Uh, go ahead. Shoot a, shoot a question if you have one. Розкажіть щось більше. Мене цікавило відносно бригад територіальної оборони. Ними посилюють кадрові бригади, правильно? А, наскільки їх зараз краще укомплектовують, якщо вони ближче знаходяться до передової? Наскільки взагалі взаємодія добре узгоджена? І наскільки ефективно оця от підхід, коли розкидають бригаду сформовану? територіальної оборони на різні відтинки і ними посилюють різними батальйонами різні е, такі давні бригади які вже досвідчені і наскільки все добре злагоджено працює е, чи є якісь нюанси бо у мене просто товариші 125 їх порозкидали по всій Україні е, от просто цікаво а, ну дивіться я працюю на Харківщині і нам дуже подобається, що тут є місцеві жителі в нашому ж пікселі, які працюють з нами, тому що вони знають краще цю місцевість. Ну, я розумію, чому розкидали, знаєте, людей завжди в будь-якій важкій роботі, а війна є саме такою, то... Окей. А, і, ну, це нормально, їх просто розкинули там, де їх треба. Їх розкинули, тому що, ну, да, скажімо так, там центральні області, ну, ну, що вони будуть стояти по центру України і охороняти самі себе чи що? От. Але не, принцип територіальності, я точно бачу, спостерігається, наприклад, тут в Харківських, де я мав змогу спілкуватися з двома батальйонами тероборони Харківщини, і це дуже гарно в плані того, як провідники, у нас оцей Шервудський, ми його називаємо Шервудський ліс, Ізюмський, вони його добре знають. Тобто це таке розвіддання, яке необхідне для роботи, тому що, що ти маєш йти ногами, бачити все ну, на, на свої очі, коли може приїхати людина і каже, ой, хлопці, там от так, 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 і, ну, тобто, розповісти специфіку. Тому в мене ніяких претензій, все нормально, хлопці хороші, бойові, за, заряжені на, на перемогу. Мені подобається з ними працювати. Дякую. Моє питання було про ТДФ-юніт, як вони кооперують з встановленими бригадами, комбат-бригадами, великими бригадами. І Хорол сказав, що це дуже добре мати таких людей для локальних, this uh national park slash wood or they call them like they have a nickname for that area woody area near izume sherwood fort uh, they have people from lo- local people from the area who know the woods who know the forest who know what's where and it's uh it's a invaluable extremely valuable part knowledge to have to have that Um, kind of, a, a, you know, people, individuals who can point to something, give an advice, etc. So local knowledge, local expertise, and people who are familiar with the landscape, invaluable in the, as an element of TDF units that help uh, established combat brigades. Konstantin, if you have a question, I'll ask you. I have a question now, I can't ask you. Okay, no problem. So do we have any more questions to Horol, um, Axel, Damon, Edian, Dave, Nick? So we, we had questions before, but um, maybe um, we can arrange for Coral to be back when it's more convenient for him, if, uh, if it's too, mu- too much tonight. How is he for time? Because а зараз ви ще маєте трохи часу, чи якщо ні, то ми просто будь-який час приймемо. Дивіться, що щоб було нормально. Дивіться, якщо маємо змогу, дивіться, сьогодні, завтра, завтра я буду абсолютно вільний на стаціонарному інтернеті, не переїжджатиму. І якщо у вас будуть питання, задоволення на всі, обіцяю, відповім стільки часу, скільки вам потрібно. So perfect, дуже супер. Нам підходить, ми взагалі 24. Ні, я серйозно, просто, просто я, я їду, поки я, я відпросився, і мені от треба завтра машину забрати, з людьми зустрітися, я ввечері сяду, видихну, 
і спокійно поговорю, особливо от з такими чарівними жінками, які так емоційно реагують. Мені просто хочеться їх заспокоїти. У мене купа історій щодо емоційних жінок, яких я намагався, допомагав врятувати з того ж самого Ірпіня. Причому, ви не повірте, це були обидві жінки-психотерапевти. Навіть так. So her all is willing to come back. Uh, essentially tomorrow he will have a stable internet connection. So anytime when the schedule permits, I believe Axel, when you have uh, a brief moment to take a glimpse sure. on our schedule. What's good for him? What's good yeah. for him? What time is good for him? Викажіть, коли вам зручніше. So same time tomorrow. So today we start at 3 a.m. Uh, 3 p.m. Eastern time. Same time tomorrow. Super. All right. So domovilis uh, na zavtra. Tay samay chat. Ми зберем більше питань, більше людей. Буде вже кращий зв'язок, бо ми трохи мучились на початку. Ви пропадали. Ми ми Вибач, можна питання чи ж в мене, в мене таке питання. В мене, коли, ми, коли ти почав розповідати про е, тероборону та місцевих, в мене один з, з найкращих друзів, мабуть, е, він гід в Ізюмському лісу, та він е, був, зараз він до війноса другої воює, та він трошки на іншому напрямку, теж на Харківщині. Але це питання від нього, що там з Ізюмським лісом, тому що він саме був гідом по Ізюмському лісу, він краєзнавець там, та прямо археолог, і для нього дуже це цікаво. Дивіться, я зараз після закінчення, я затвітю, я ще з твітером не розібрався, як то робити, затвітю, можете на сторінці подивитися, я тут постив, розумієте, коли в Ізюмському лісі Кацапи здіймають своїми обстрілами настільки сильно землю, що земля випльовує те, що залишилося від фашистів. Це саме 76-мм снаряди, які були заготовлені десь якомусь там, ну, БК сложено. І земля це вивергає, я просто мені страшно уявити, що буде, скільки ми будемо викорчовувати те, що вони зараз кидають. Це перше. Ізюмський ліс – це мертвий ліс. Наразі вони його спалили практично повністю. І третє, я з дивуванням узнав, що да, от він краєзнавець, тому що я досі іноді ходжу по тим доріжкам туристичних маршрутів, які були до вторгнення. Можете йому так передати. Дякую. В них є навіть вони, якщо вам цікаво, вони, вони, у них була своя книга, вони здали її не так давно про Ізюм та його та околиці його та історію довкола цього. Якщо вам цікаво, я можу вам спитати і вам передадуть, якщо я час читати. Так, да, без питань. Передайте. Зараз я якраз твічу, я зрозумів, як то робити, де ж та фотографія, боже ж, скільки їх у мене. От я затвітив те, що ми не знайшли після їхнього чергового опису, видно снаряд, ну, аж буде я маю йти давайте до завтра дякую всім до побачення домовились до завтра в той самий час дякую вам за ваш час дякую essentially a landline presumably or something similar stationary not moving around in the vehicle uh, if you don't mind I'll read translate what what he answered sure, sure. so I have asked um, I have a couple like essentially everyone I served with are from almost all from Izum and there are people who are local guides uh, and who actually you know have um, compiled the uh, book so my question about his human its history and and what it is and i asked him if he can give any information about Izum forest that's a large forested area to the west and he says that uh it's essentially dead wood right now there is almost nothing alive and uh, this is an area where there were heavy battles during second world war 
and right now when they're shelling uh, lots of uh, lots of uh, equipment and uh, uh, ammunition from Second World War is being detonated from the Russian shelling right now. So if you're interested, he will make a post in in a couple of minutes about that, as I understand, with the pictures of what they have found there. It is one of the most heavily mined areas of the national parks in Ukraine. Yeah, thank you. Because they were battling each other there in uh, 41, 42, and then, yeah, well, bad times. Ukrainian soil just can't rest. It always has some, yeah. It's the same battlefield. And by the way, water, maybe it's worth highlighting that uh, the 93rd, uh, the unit of Roman Ratuzny was instrumental in navigating exactly that fort. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the 93rd is still active in that area, alongside with uh, adjacent units. They're like the largest brigade. Essentially, I believe they used to be like a division, and then they uh, basically were rebranded as brigade. Uh, so it's a somewhat of a different thing. Uh, it's a brigade with large number of battalions. Uh, and also a brigade that has been in active fighting since the southern Fregene in different hottest spots from, uh, I believe, even from uh, Ilovaisk and Savurmohila to defense of the Donetsk airport and, well, recently, obviously, Kharkiv. Walter, um, I think I missed a little bit of a satuti in, in what he said and. Uh, you guys, when you were translating, you kind of glossed over it. He said, Izum Forest is now a dead forest, right? Did, did he mean in terms of mining and unexploded ordinances, or did he mean in terms of how many people died? I, uh, well, I did. I should have actually specified, but I think it's... Uh, he, my assumption is that uh, that's because of the amount of damage and shelling. Uh, because he specifically said that they're shelling so much, the whole area that German uh, leftovers from uh, uh, Wehrmacht from 1943 that are left in there and were covered by layers of earth and mud and dirt and the forest grew atop, on top of that, they're being dug out by shelling, by massive shelling, and they're erupted from underneath the earth, uh, and these old German shells, 76-millimeter <laughs> shells, appear. It's actually the, the Russian mines, Walter, it's actually the Russian mines, because right. the Russians were defending themselves uh, against uh, the Wehrmacht in 1941. They put the mine belt in there, which is where, when you remember what Roman uh, mentioned, when they were very carefully traipsing through these areas and doing their recce, um, they were essentially in, in very well-documented mine territory where the Russians had laid their mine belt west of Izium. And they are now, and the Russians are now exploding the Soviet mine belt because they know where it is. Thank you. Now that silenced the party, Doman. I mean, what did you, what did you think was going to happen uh, when, when we brought up Soviet mines being blown up by current Russian shelling. That is what they do. If only we had an artillery officer to tell us what this actually takes to get these mines, which are at times about one, one and a half meters underground by now, because the forest has fallen on top of them. What it takes, what kind of shelling does it? I mean, uh, there is a way to clear minefields with artillery, but it certainly isn't ideal. I can tell you that much. But it seems they're using it as a defensive measure against the Ukrainians' advance. Are they actually? I'm sorry, I was I was working. I was unable to to get most of the interview there. But um, if, if that is the case, then that is uh, very strange to say the least. That they would actually consider that a viable option because with with modern detection and modern equipment, I mean, yes, it's a lot of explosive, but it's also uh, nowhere near the same as you know the German mines or modern mines that we know a lot about today, where with explosively formed penetrators and things like that. Um, I don't know. I guess I wouldn't be personally too worried about it, but I also, you know, I'm in the U.S. Army where we've got equipment to deal with that, not walking on foot all the time. Yeah, you're definitely far more advanced in that regard. I think they're just using it to try to deter Ukrainian troops advancing through the forest. And um, Walter, what did he say? He said dead forest and um, that the territory is essentially, yeah, can't walk across it, right? Oh, he's a dead forest. So actually, I think that he posted to the net 
Um, and I believe, well, he meant that this is the, the German, old German 76 mil uh, shell. So it's up to you to determine whether it's the case or not. And his idea was that Russian artillery fires so intense. Yeah, that's a shell. That, He's yeah. right. He's right. That's a 76 shell and not a mine. So essentially, Russian artillery digs that the explosions and the impacts, they uh, dig the dows from, from the old trenches that have been buried for decades. CJ, imagine that. Unexploded artillery shells now being exploded. Well, the same thing happened when I was living in Italy and then Germany every about once a year, there would um, be alarms because people would uh, be renovating a house and they would find an American bomb in the basement that hadn't gone off uh, during World War II. And they would have to evacuate a couple city blocks until they uh, demined it and made, made the area safe again. So it's kind of you kind of forget the scale of World War II until things like this happen and you realize, you know, what will people find in Ukraine hundreds of years from now? It might be a, a lot of the same based on what's going on. The interesting thing is, but if they are also uh, uh, literally shelling the mine belts uh, around Izium, then they must be pretty desperate. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I, did, did he actually say that that was a tactical task that was being issued to Russians to, to do this? Because, you know, that, I don't know, that doesn't seem realistic to me. But again, I'm not there, he is. So I, I wouldn't want to assume, but also... I no, no, no. He, he didn't say that they specifically do that to, to extract those from... It's just, uh, you know, unexpected uh, effect because the amount of shelling was so big that even such things are being extracted. By yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think, too, like, even though it sucks that there's all this unexploded ordnance in the woods, I mean, as far as I understand it, this area of Kharkiv is relatively uh, unpopulated compared to a lot of other parts of uh, Ukraine, you know, especially the vital... Izium. Yeah. It's, well, it's the forest west of Izium. Yeah. And so, you know, because as you know, once you once you get to Izium, there's only, uh, you know, Kupiansk and a few other cities until you're at the Russian border. So being in that wood line in uh, Izium is not great, but it's, I mean, imagine, Axel, like this is, this is the position that Ukraine is in where they're holding their own and they're on the cusp of... Uh, you know, going back on the offensive. I mean, there's definitely, it's definitely not what the Russians planned to be having one of their key supply points and key captured cities so threatened uh, this early on. I think it's very hard for us as human beings outside of this uh, shelling area, and outside of this battlefield to imagine that. But I think both you and I have read a lot of stories about this and you have been under fire. So you do understand this better than many. Um, Nobody should, nobody in their right mind as a civilian should be ever exposed to this. Yeah, but luckily there's some weapons that are on their way or in Ukraine's hands that are going to help make that uh, terrible nightmare come to an end, you know? I, when I made my observation was when I hear said, you brought us the weapons or uh, since the time we got your weapons. I found it very, uh, he said it in the beginning a few times. And I found it very touching how he, this, how thankful they are and uh, that the audience are people who send it to them. So this shows, yeah, how desperate they were waiting and how, what is the turning point of it. CJ, the gift of M777s, how it's us, and especially high mark. You know, do you have a sort of specific question about them or do you just want an update on what's being given? No, I, want, I wanted you to give a little update because Irene, who is of Ukrainian descent and has been um, as a medical professional in Germany for many, many years, I think in Munich, if I'm not quite mistaken, Irene, or in the Munich yeah. area, obviously has, uh, um, is far away from all of this and therefore suffers a great deal more because she, uh, it's this powerlessness of being far away and being unable to help. Yeah, yeah I especially think living in a, in a country with the fourth biggest weapon industry. And just seeing um, the country you were working for and studying and like very committed um, <clears throat> in the professional world and you just see helpless how, how it all, like, this slow motion, because the problem is losing all these professional soldiers. This is like not only humanely, but also this is for the army of Ukraine, all this... Uh, procrastinating and all this slow uh, like process it costs life and this is what i don't understand that the politicians are not seeing it here 
uh, losing a, a soldier who has fought for eight years. He has a huge experience. And um, this is just, I, I don't understand how the Western world can react to such a war this way. And without US, uh, Europe is lost and having this arrogance here in Europe. But actually, Putin has uh, worked for, for so many years uh, to undermine the politician elite here. So it's it's not surprising, but still you sit and you think, you, you just dream. Yeah. And they are just waiting and waiting and they are shelled and die. And like Roman uh, Ratushny who died, uh, it's just, you know, and when they get something, they are just using it wonderful. And, and, and Scholz is talking about, yeah, it takes time and you need exercise. It just, uh, it's just difficult to observe when the leader of, of, of a country has no idea what this war is about and um, historically what we are actually witnessing now. It just, <laughs> yeah, speechless. Yeah, Probably, I don't know yeah. if um, the, the, the distinguished speaker was able to speak to it, but there is uh, one glimmer of hope in Kharkiv and, and in regards to what you're just referencing too, and that is the, the, the smart artillery rounds, which have been given to the Panzerhausens and apparently have been quite successful on that, uh, that axis of advance against uh, Russian tanks and whatnot. So while uh, we all probably agree here, Germany could have done a lot more sooner and probably still needs to, I think, uh, I don't know, I think that tide is turning. But what I would say is to your original comment about the speaker, you know, kind of saying thank you, you know, obviously, first and foremost, as everyone knows, this couldn't be possible without the great technical skill and determination of the Ukrainians to, to make it so. But you know, it's why it's so important for us to fight back against the narrative that, um, you know, what we're giving them is not working because, you know, listen, listen straight from the source. Right. It, it certainly is. Well, of course, you know, more must be given to, to reach that end. You know, this is just shows you that it wasn't, you know, one time, you know, political thing to, to cover our asses, as you would say, just in case, you know, it wasn't like we were trying to mitigate risk at any cost. It was, you know, a real commitment from the United States government to see this thing through to the end, not to have some sort of proxy war, not to bleed Russia, just to Ukraine defend itself and in a more permanent and long-term way than we've done before, where we probably missed an opportunity uh, to, to do it sooner, but, you know, better late than never. So I just would always highlight that this is not a one-time thing. It's, you know, eight aid packages. It's training, you know, it's UK training in, you know, all across um, Britain in terms of 10,000 soldiers, uh, you know, Ukrainians right off the street who have never fought a day in their lives learning military skills from NATO. You know what I mean? So I think uh, there are some good things to look at. If, uh, if we just looked at Germany, of course, it would not paint a rosy picture, but I think uh, things are, you know, progressing. They're not regressing, thankfully, but um yeah, hopefully that helps. Well said, CJ. Well said. The strange thing is, this is where Irene is, of course, right, is that whenever German equipment actually appears in theater, the Ukrainians make perfect use of it. And it's super helpful, which is why it is so annoying that so little comes so late. Yeah, definitely can't uh, fight you there, although it will be interesting because, you know, allegedly the M270s from the UK are in theater. And I wonder if that means if the great Mars are there as well. I'm not sure if you've heard anything, Axel, about that. I have absolutely no visibility in recent days. It's really terrible. I'm sorry, mate. Well, we'll hope that's a good thing then, because it very may, very may well be a good thing that we don't know much. But, you know, of course, if we get anything from Ukraine, we'll, we'll share it here widely because it's uh, at that point wanted to be spread. But I'd imagine... There is a lot going on, and then off time to take a lot of pictures for us. I sincerely hope so. Leonard, let's move to you. Uh, yes, uh, thank you, Axel. Uh, I just wanted to just uh, respond uh, a little bit to the, the sort of a note of, it sounds a, a little bit of uh, perhaps in the background approaching towards uh, just a little bit of despair on Irene's part in terms of the overall uh, level of commitment here and just uh, try to reassure her uh, a little bit and certainly uh, backing up what uh, CJ has laid out in chapter and verse in terms of the the level of material support and the hardware and the military uh, nuts and bolts and on the ground backup that has been committed already by the West 
across the board, and most uh, particularly uh, with the sort of cascading level of support that we see coming out of the United States. And hopefully Irene can appreciate at least the the strong spirit that is backing up all of this uh, level of material commitment out of the West. And I can't speak anywhere near as particularly or as eloquently as CJ can on the ins and outs of the hardware and the specific uh, items and the, and the actual uh, technological uh, panoply that's unfolding on the battlefield. But I certainly can speak on behalf of the the level of commitment and the fighting spirit that exists in the West and in Canada in particular and in uh, Great Britain uh, simultaneously and that appears certainly on all of the the the, the very well uh, informed speakers that we've heard out of the United States in the last several days. The level of commitment is, I would say, beyond question. And one only need listen to uh, general staff and highly informed uh, military uh, uh, staffers and advisors and uh, on-the-ground um, battle group commanders, uh, such as Ben Hodges of, of the U.S. Army and even David Petraeus, um, uh, formerly of the U.S. Army, and the uh, the very clear emanations coming forth from uh, ben Wallace in the, in the UK, um, a, a, a former very battle-hardened and experienced Royal Marine uh, commander. And if one considers that uh, entire package of support and commitment to what's going on on the ground in the Ukraine, then I would submit that uh, there's certainly no... Uh, or hopefully I can dispel Irene from um, having a, a more of a sense of melancholy or or even tilting somewhat towards despair over the current situation with Russia on the ground. Because on the global scale, I would submit that all the evidence that's being presented on this space indicates that that tide is clearly turning. And these things never turn on a dime. To some degree, it's like turning the. It's like uh, turning around an ocean liner in uh, full steam on the high seas, and uh, this has been going on yes for four months, but uh, the the previous clear comparison in terms of uh, cataclysm would be World War II, and everybody's acknowledged we haven't seen this level of uh, uh, atrocity and breach of of international law literally since then and that it took a great deal of uh, time to turn the tide at that stage but it was turned and it was turned resolutely and it was turned finally and the result was uh, precisely what the what what the objective uh, was headed was heading towards it was precisely the objective that was put in sight and I would submit that uh, that's clearly exactly the same situation that prevails today with Ukraine. Uh, so hopefully that lends a little bit of um, more of a positive outlook in terms of uh, of what Irene is thinking. Thank you. Thank you a lot. I'm I'm quite aware. I'm very in, like informed about all the news. Um, that U.S. is helping, and it is really uh, U.S. and Britain and, uh, let's say, Canada. Um, in the beginning of the war, I was just um, desperate how slow um, the country I live in uh, reacted. And uh, there was, as usual, a lot of talking from Scholz, but the deeds were really prolonged and really late. And so this is where, where my desperation comes, just being in a country which is really, really divided. Fifty uh, percent are now thinking about the gas prices, and they are uh, like maybe reading tweets, uh, tweets with all these bots. Uh, it's it's just incredible what what Germans are writing there. And the other half is really uh, like the thinking population who knows um, um, what's at stake. But this is probably because I'm in Germany. And um, and, and funny, um, not funny. Excuse me. 
when I was so desperate, how how late, um, like how the reaction of Macron and and Scholz and all this. Uh, Putin discussions with him and uh, I, I have listened to a report in, in Ukraine and they said to me just, uh, not to me, excuse me, they just said uh, to to explain why Europe, uh, who is helping now Ukraine, you just have to look at the Second World War and just have to look at the participants, what role they played, what role French played or German played or Hungary or Austria and who was like <laughs> taking the initiative uh, America Britain and it helped me a lot just to see all these parallels because uh, first yeah you see how how different they all react and just Europe is filled with propaganda and uh, like in Italy we have we will have now a political or have already a political crisis so Europe is really, really a problem. Of course, it has positive uh, uh, like changes, and I'm aware of it. But just even myself had contacts to soldiers. I have helped, and I didn't know them personally, but I was in contact with them. And when you see, uh, hear news that they have died, and you just always look at the last message, you are just, and you see that the time is not changing anymore you are just seeing what happens through these prolongations. Like just people are dying and especially very experienced people are very patriotic and very good-hearted people. And this is just, yeah, it hurts. But I'm positive because um, we will win it. And I know just the question, how many people will die until that? This is the only question, yeah. <laughs> and US as usual. <laughs> Without U.S., it would be, a, yeah. But it's just Germany has such a good equipment. What, what they are building, they're building really well. It's really good and, and the quality. And let's imagine what would help when they would just, with the same effort, uh, react to, to all this. This would be, like, incredible. Uh, and this is what, what yeah, disappoints. Nicht aufgeben. Yeah. <laughs> But it's not really surprising that society is changing. The generation, young generation here is just uh, was discussing during the last years about, I don't know how to translate it, bedienungsloses Einkommen, like just get a basic uh, wage without work uh, or work-life balance. I see it in my medical field, how many uh, like uh, students who are finished me medical studies are thinking about part-time job without having actually children or family. Just the attitude to life is different. They didn't have conflicts. They are they live in a very wealthy area, especially here in Bavaria. Um, it changes um, perspectives, and um, yeah, it's easier for me to know about all this because you, you I still experience the, the the last years of the Viet Union. So I'm very sensible about the the danger of all this conflict and. Uh, yeah, this is just not as present here. And now it's summertime and all politicians are making vacations. And uh, as long as I heard today, uh, the, this Maria Stark Zimmermann, this politician said that we have to send Mars. So it didn't sound like it's on the way, but they won't. And yeah, they are just fighting with each other. The ones are passive. The, she tries to, to force more, but... She belongs to a party who is in coalition. Yeah. Oh, well, then she needs to leave the coalition. Yeah, and exactly. Then but they change. have guts to do this. They are now all corrupt in it. Uh, all the FTP and uh, they want power and they are afraid. And this is why they are paralyzed. Yeah, exactly. CJ, if only the good Germans, you got to know where to do what they should be doing. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, quite perhaps... Uh, like France, they're they're giving more than they're letting on, which again is an interesting political tactic, considering uh, how unpopular the governments are, generally speaking. But um, you know that's neither here nor there. And it looks like we have our good friend Portland. I wonder if uh, we are going to go to our favorite topic. But I'll, Axel, you're the co-host, so take it away. <laughs> no, no, please, please. Uh, I, I'll hand it over to you, and I'm happy to co-host you as well, because uh, I think Portland, you and we might be even discussing apogees, right? Yeah.
Um, actually, CJ, if you would check the shitpost, uh, no, uh, Pyromaniacs Anonymous, please, because I don't want to talk about this without you signing off. Yeah, no, we can kind of uh, blue team, red team it as well if you want to talk about some of the defenses, and I'll talk a bit about the offenses. And, of course, I'll defer to you on the uh, actual rocketry because that's definitely not my area of expertise. Um, awesome. I, uh, you know, on the basis that I, I have a pretty robust, uh, certainly mathematically robust, uh, explanation based on the evidence to hand as to why S-400 is shitting the bed so hard, uh, I, uh, I was wondering about whether it was a good idea to talk about it in public. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's a mathematical analysis, and the Russians are just as capable of doing that as I am. So, you know. Uh, Wrong, friends. Nobody's going to listen. Let's shoot the shit. Yeah, and I think if we talk, we're talking generally about how, you know, the, the differences, you know, we, we unfortunately see every day these ballistic missiles and airdrop munitions um, from Russia into Ukraine wreak havoc on the civilian population. We can kind of use this as a, an anchor point to kind of discuss why, um, you know, the Western missiles aren't like this, but also how the Russian ones are defeatable with more aircraft in the region, which is part of this new defense budget. And, uh, why, if Russia were to, to put up more fighters, it wouldn't necessarily help them to the same way. Absolutely. Okay, well, you, you stay and uh, I'll row, okay? Yeah, so, we, you know, we, well, I've been getting questions about HIMARS for like two or three months now. And so people will always want to know about the, the damn Kerch Bridge, which Portland and I will not be discussing today by any stretch, unless it does blow up, in which case then we'll spend the requisite amount of time talking about it because it, is, it would be a significant event. Uh, but not a moment more than that. But, um, you know, people ask me as a, a you know, artillery officer who helps with targeting and planning, you know, what do we think they're going to go with for the high Mars? Where, where is Ukraine going to focus? And I kind of thought while they're in the offensive, they might go for more of the Russian troop formations because the Ukrainian defenses are pretty good. but They can't reach, you know, the Russians in their barracks or the Russian command posts. Well, it turns out, you know, Ukraine started off with a pretty heavy blow all these ammo dumps, of course. It's always high merits o'clock in, in Ukraine these days. But, you know, an interesting thing, too, is about a weekend, they started going after S-300s and S-400s, which are these prime Russian air defense systems. They sold them all over the world. Uh, American pilots, I wouldn't say they fear them per se, but they're definitely a formidable air defense system that's mobile uh, and extremely long-ranged and, and pretty good. And um, and so the, the comment that came out of, you know, Ukraine targeting these things is, well, why on earth can't Russians shoot these missiles down? And, you know, with that, it, the hysteria started to build across Russia on Telegram and on everywhere else. Why on earth are Russians letting Ukraine, was the line of thinking, attack these ammo dumps? And, you know, it came out quite soon and quite clearly that these giant and supposedly formidable air defense systems, um, while they can take out aircraft, they're having a lot of trouble with the HIMARS. And so with that, Portland, can you sort of explain how an S-300, S-400 would, would track and, and defeat a missile, generally speaking? And then we can maybe go to HIMAR specifically. Okay, so in general, you've got two ways that you can track uh, a missile that matter in, in this particular context. And both of these rely on radar, but you've got radar on the ground and you've got radar in the air. Um, the the interesting thing about the top plate radar on the S-400 suite is that it has a maximum elevation of roughly 30 degrees and a 24-degree vertical field of regard, meaning that it can only see up at an angle of about 42 degrees. So it can see a very long way, but it can only look up 42 degrees. And this is great if you're trying to defend against uh, heavy bombers, air-launched cruise missiles, uh, surface-to-surface missiles of many types, uh, fighter jets, uh, and the kind of very fast, heavy payload, low-apogee missiles that uh, Russia herself favors. It does not work very well against anything that's going to come in at an angle greater well it doesn't work for shit it doesn't work at all against anything coming in with an angle 
greater than about 42 degrees. Now, you do get some compensation for that uh, with airborne early warning radars. Um, but we've seen that the Russians seem to have quite a hard time keeping 24-7 airborne early warning coverage um, in the area of Ukraine. So evidence to hand suggests that most of these batteries are operating in local control. And those batteries are only looking up to 42 degrees. So I'm going to kick it back to CJ. And uh, Yeah, I think that's, and I'm getting a couple of DMs here. Again, when we say Apogee, we're talking kind of about the height of the missile, which will be kind of important uh, in, in a moment. So imagine, you know, the task before Ukraine, of course, is, is to capture all of its terrain back, you know, that was been illegally seized or invaded from 2014, right? So it includes areas such as Crimea, where the Russian Black Sea Fleet is stationed. It includes Donbass, where, you know, for eight years, Russia has built up a significant uh, defense in, in that area. And also areas like Kherson and Kharkiv that have recently been captured and are slowly being chipped away at by the Ukrainians. So with these angles and everything, we talk about S-300s and S-400s because they can, you know, they're mobile, right? They can go into the front. They can shoot down a lot of aircraft. Maybe you're struggling a bit with the missiles. But what else can Russia turn to if these things aren't really working against HIMARS? What what else do they really have left that they could bring to shoot down Ukrainian missiles? Uh, basically, shit all. If S-400 isn't working, S-500 isn't ready, and in any case is just another brand uh, rebranding of S- S-300 PMU-3, um, they, they don't really have anything else that's ready to go right now. Yeah, and so... <clears throat> While Ukraine takes out Russian ballistic missiles with, you know, its own S-300s, with its fighter jets, you know, Russia can kind of do the same. In, in your opinion, though, you know, how is Ukraine and Russia doing with, you know, shooting these missiles out of the sky? What are some considerations for fighter pilots going out, going up and trying to take out these missiles? Could it be possible for even Russian uh, jets to take down HIMARS? I mean, there's there's no particularly robust conceptual reason why you couldn't do it with a MiG thirty one, and uh, one of the uh, one of those stupid big air to air missiles that they carry. I forget what model that is, but that requires that you have a cap in the air ready to go. And since we know that it's always high miles o'clock in Ukraine. That imposes a very significant burden, especially when you consider that the, I think it's the AJ-31 turbofans on the uh, on the MiG-31 have a um, operational life between complete teardowns of around 500 hours. So with the number of airframes that they have and the need to maintain a cap at all times, I don't know that they have I don't know that they have the airframes to do that because if they're you know already up in the air flying and flying within Ukrainian territory they're also how are they at risk themselves well they're they're very at risk because they are inside of the 42 degree field of regard that 